passage of Scripture. Um, I will do it justice, but I will do it a very fast pace. You have the outline that can be mailed to you. We're going to cover much of this material in our evening's uh, uh, series on the book of Exodus because we're in the, the section of Exodus on the Ten Commandments. And we will be there uh, parked on the, on the very foot of Mount Sinai for at least two months, maybe longer. So we will look at these things in depth. So right now there's no sense of me parking here as well. We'll go fast. I've got a thorough sermon, but it'll be going faster. Let me read the word of our Lord beginning with verse 34, Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And uh, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thus far reading of God's holy word. Beloved, all flesh is as grass, its beauty as the flower of the field. Grass withers, its flower fades. But the word of our God lasts forever. And this is the word that was just, just read to you. By God's help it will be preached. Please have a seat. We find Jesus here in the last week of his life, having entered Jerusalem with much pomp, although in a humble way, mounted on a donkey, the, uh, the crowds welcoming him as the son of David, singing hallelujahs, even the infants and nursing babes, fulfilling the scriptures, anticipating the great coming of Messiah, King and he proceeded to go to the temple and cleanse that, and uh, it looked like he lacked all authority to do that. So the religious leaders are on Jesus' tail. And they are approaching him with questions in open dispute in public, hoping to either shame him or trap him, put him on a horns of dilemma as, uh, as the Sadducees, uh, that, was their, that was their tack. And having found no satisfaction in their approach, because Jesus is just not vulnerable uh, to, to, to failure in any kind of test. He knows all of Scripture. He himself inspired Scripture in his, in his spirit, being Christ, the second person of the Trinity from eternity past. Sure, he knows it. They're frustrated, but they haven't given up quite yet. And here's uh, another one coming forth. This one, this Philistine is, uh, is Goliath. I shouldn't really call him Philistine. He's, a, he's a, a covenant member of the Jewish community. He's a prominent lawyer. This man has studied. He has credentials. He knows a lot, perhaps more than many of you here, except that you know Christ, and having known Christ, you know everything that you need to know. But he certainly didn't know Christ. And that's why he's coming to Christ, as if Christ was an ordinary guy without credentials, you know, he didn't make quite an. He didn't really have a, a good appearance. He was, he was just a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Didn't really announce himself. So here comes a lawyer, and he's hoping to accomplish the same things. He has a very good question, but still the attitude 
is not quite right. You know, the first thing we need to do when we come before the Lord is, <laughs> is to respect His person. And if we're not sure who He is, at least give Him, at least give Him some reverence. That's how we should approach everybody. But in this passage, the Pharisees send one of their very best, hoping to get Jesus to contradict the law. And in a sense, asking probably the easiest question of anybody who might really, really have studied the Scriptures. He didn't go to the rabbinic schools, but does he know really the heart of the Scriptures, the Old Testament? Does Jesus really know the very heart? And that's the question. It's a good question, even though it was, uh, it was uh, raised in an unfit way, in an unworthy manner. So the teaching here is that that true religion, and I should, I should say true practical religion, because there are many things to believe that are not summed up under law of commandment. But uh, as far as practical religion goes, all true practical religion may be somehow connected here to these Ten Commandments. The true practical religion can be summarized in two rules. All of that is compressed. All the moral teachings are compressed in Ten Commandments, and now they are compressed further into two rules. And they are to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and with the, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's the teaching. It's, very, it's, it's just here. It's, it seems easy to, to bring out before you, but let's examine what the teaching says. All right, the first point of my sermon, I think there's two, two points, but the second point is much longer. The, the, what, we see, what we see here is that Jesus is able to overturn wicked schemes, these contradictions, these these plots of the wicked, he's able to overturn those into righteous and holy instruction. And that's because he's wise. He takes, as God does, bad. And he's able to bring glowing goodness, beautiful wisdom out of it. And that's because he's Messiah, the son of God, the son of David, the son of man. Jesus is able to do this. The wicked certainly plot and they plot wickedness by gathering to schemes against Jesus. That's in the passage. They've come together. They're taking counsel. And I'll remind you that there are three sects of the Jews, and they're all scheming because there are, each of these various divisions in the Jewry uh, is, uh, is challenged <laughs> and is, is, well, their reputations are at stake. If someone can uh, shame them in public, the way that Jesus has been preaching and reforming the religion of the Jews, while well, they certainly, they, that hurts. It hurts not to have a, a ready answer when someone is brimming with Scripture and can't be contradicted. The three sects of the Jews were scheming then to trap Jesus in his words. The Herodians, these were politicians. They asked Jesus questions regarding the, the rights of civil authority versus, uh, yeah, well, that was their main idea. What is this place, where does Jesus sit in relation to, uh, to Rome. The Sadducees were libertines. They were the liberal theologians of their day. Their religion was truncated. And many of you know, you have your study Bibles with you, the side margin will say they had uh, only the Pentateuch, Moses. They only affirmed that. They missed a lot, a lot of teaching in the prophets. They lost a lot. They, they, it's a truncated religion. Uh, so they asked Jesus about questions that they really did not believe, like the resurrection. And that is a cardinal doctrine. Uh, even Job, as I mentioned, Job 19. 
Job even uh, testified that. And that was, I believe, many theologians believe, and that's even before Abraham. So those are the, Sadduc the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees here. These are really uh, the best. They're, they're the best instructed. I, I dare say if you met a Pharisee today, you would think, even today, you'd have to be very careful because you would think that this man is a, he's, he's blameless. Outwardly, he's, he's a shining example of, of morality and piety. But they held their faith in hypocrisy. And they did much to show their devotion in public. They were self-righteous. And they kept traditions of the elders adding to the word of God and detracting when it was convenient to their own brand of righteousness. But here we have a subset of the Pharisees, and he's a lawyer, namakos in the Greek. And this is a teacher of the law, or really a scribe. Now, a scribe, when we read the scribe in the, test, in the New Testament, we think, oh, that's a bad guy. Scribes are bad, bad. Well, you know, scribes weren't always bad, and not all scribes had been bad uh, in the Old Testament. Ezra was a, a very able scribe, and he led in revival uh, after the Babylonian captivity. So uh, their, their whole life is devoted to study and to prayer and to teaching and to drawing forth the scriptures and making application so that the people have practical wisdom and guiding, guiding their lives in practical ways. We're talking about the most practical demonstration of, uh, of the faith, which, which is here in this passage, love to God and love to neighbor as self. This lawyer, Namakos, kept to the letter of the law more closely than the rest. But as we see here, uh, even with man's best attempt, even having the scripture, your best attempt at, at, at knowledge and even in the practice of what you know is never, is never going to be judged good enough because what God is calling us to, and it's very clear from the Sermon on Mount and other places, that God calls us all to perfect righteousness, to perfect obedience. And the law, if it is not if it is not satisfied with that perfection, failing that, well, first of all, you have no grounds for self-righteousness or boasting. Secondly, you are condemned. We need, to, we, need, we need to understand this, that these people are trying hard, but they're deceived into thinking that God will judge them on a curve, or perhaps they've ingratiated, ingratiated themselves to God somehow by being attentive to his commandments. They kept to the letter of the law more closely than any group. Now, a Pharisee, this one who was a lawyer, addresses Jesus, hoping to tempt him or try him or test him. The Greek it could be going either way, but since everyone else coming to Jesus had the, had the notion of, of trying him and the, the Pharisees consulted together, I translated here, tempt him. He's asking, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, this is a great, great question, and it's a very important question because it relates to not some abstract theory, uh, you know, the Jews were very earthy people and they loved to practice. We should too. We, you know, in, in, in terms of our understanding, we, we study theology that we might be great practitioners. We study theology as the science of living well unto God. That's, that's theology. Uh, so this is a very important question on the practice, the practical side of theology. And, and it's a unifying question. The whole, and I brought this up before in the previous uh, uh, preaching, the, the whole reason why 
Jewry is in sex and, in, uh, and these divisions and schisms are all vying for one another is that they do not have the Christ who, bind, who binds all things in one. If we were truly Christians, there would be one Christian faith in the world, especially as he has promised us grace and knowledge and at least one in the, in the fundamentals. I, I doubt if all Christianity on this earth I haven't seen it. We've never attained the robustness of what we should believe in the consensus as broad and as deep as Westminster. Now, would that all Christians be Presbyterian? But, my friends, what I'm saying is, we have all these divisions because we're still fleshly. It's the flesh that causes schisms. And if we had more of Christ, we'd have less of a divided church. There's only one bride of Christ. The unifying question is the great commandment that all should believe and practice. That would bring all people together because it can only be begun to be fulfilled when we all know God, when we all are at peace and reconciled with God. And the commandments here, proving that we're, we're sinners, would drive us. The Jews had every reason to be driven to seek sanctuary in Jehovah's promises as they were pictured in promises and, and, uh, and, cer and ceremonies, and circumcision, the Passover, uh, and the sacrifices, all these things depicted Christ in the shadowy form, but they could take refuge in that. They could, they could wait on the Lord. A unifying question, as we hear in Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, hear all of Israel, the great Shema, oh, hear, listen to this, the Lord your God is one. One, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That, that is the unifying practical consideration of everyone that loves Jehovah. Hear it, you who are all Israel, the true Israel of God today. But he asked this question in hypocrisy. You can see, you can see what depths of, of, of insight you can have as a scribe and still miss heaven by a gulf. You can come this close. Knowledge is never enough. He asked the question in hypocrisy, having no sincere interest in keeping the law to the letter, maybe, the externally, yes, but to the heart. Now, why is that? Well, because they had animosity in their hearts. They were envious of the Christ. They, they, they were puzzled by his rebukes. They didn't understand who he really was. You remember the parable of the wicked tenants. Ah, here's the son. He's the heir. Uh, let's kill him and then we'll have this place. That's their attitude. Because the scribe and his cohorts meant harm to Jesus. Now relating to that, He's just not an ordinary man. When we sin against someone, we sin against him and we sin against God because he's God's creature. But when you sin against Jesus, you're sinning directly against God. You're sinning directly against God and you're sinning directly against his son, who is a man. But here, my friend, Jesus is able to overturn these wicked schemes. Jesus replies with a most useful and most biblical and here verbatim summary of the law and the prophets. He, he, he lets them know why, and I'll get this, quote him in a second. But anyway, Jesus can't be discredited. He, he is not about to lose an argument in, in public or anywhere. 
because he is the prophet of Israel promised uh, through Moses, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18. He is the teacher. He is the instructor, as we'll find out in the next chapter. Jesus only truly knows and truly understands the whole of Scripture perfectly. And if there were anything else that we could know and adore him, it's just for that. We who love the study of Scriptures, and especially as we see the fruit of that study in, in, a, in a, a good and wholesome and beautiful sacrificial, holy life. Jesus is able to read the thoughts and the intentions of, of human hearts as he reads the book of the law of God. It's no harder for him to read the intentions and the hearts of men and know their, uh, their, their schemes than it is for him to read the Bible and know the will of God. Jesus is wise to overturn every scheme and to turn it into good. And that's why he's such a wonderful Savior, you are completely safe with the Lord Jesus because there's no undoing any of his plans. And his plans are to save you and to protect you and to nurture you and to love you and to adorn you. That's what Jesus does to those who love him. Now beware then of, of, of using religion as a, as a cloak for practicing a form of godliness but really no power. There's no power to these Pharisees. Oh, sure, they, they, they go on mission trips and they make proselytes when in doing so and bring them into their heretical religion, schismatic religion, and make them twice the son of, of hell. It's a horrible thing to be under a, a wicked system, a, a wicked religion, uh, one who doesn't understand even the most basic things of, uh, of Scripture, as we saw last time, the word I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live to God. What book have you been reading, man? Very dangerous to be in a false expression of Christianity today. Beware. And beware and look to the fruit of righteousness. If you have Christ, you have the seed of God. That seed will necessarily be fertile by God's blessing. It will blossom. It will grow. It will nurture. You will leaf out and you will flower and you will fruit. Good works are not only promised, but they are necessary. Not for justification, but to substantiate your true faith and your true justification. Your sin, my friend, will find you out as Christ finds out these wicked people. They know their schemes. And so we have to be absolutely transparent before God when you kneel before him in prayer and, and, and you, you, you ask the Lord to search your heart and to try you, to know your anxious thoughts and see if there's, any, if there's any hurtful way in you. And if there is, to have him lead you in, in, the, way, in the way everlasting. Your sin will find you out. Jesus knows your thoughts too. He not only knows what you do, but why you do them. And your intentions are perhaps even more important than what you do. Why you, why you pay money to the church is perhaps more important than the amount that you give. Why you're here, your desire for God, your desire to give Him glory, may be more important than you get uh, counted here on our attendance sheet. So Jesus is able to overturn wicked schemes. He's able to turn them around gloriously and give righteous instruction by his wisdom. 
The second point is this, that wisdom, this godly wisdom, God's wisdom, understands true religion as this. True religion requires love to God and love to neighbor as to self. That's true religion and it's wisdom. Wisdom, again, is the application of understanding in time and place. And the ability to do that uh, in, a, in, in a pattern that is conformal, uh, conforms to the, the pattern and the means that Jesus uses, that's true wisdom. That's true wisdom for us. Now, we have the commandment to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength, all your mind. What is love? Love is not something that's in the Bible and it doesn't have definition. And I'm going to help you perhaps with some thoughts on love and some, uh, some qualities of love that even in a natural person who's un, unregenerate knows something of love so that when we communicate the gospel that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can say that to an unconverted person and you're speaking a word there, love, which he can relate to in some way. So let me, let me back up and show you some of the attributes of love and remind you what this, what this meant. <clears throat> now love, the word agape in the Greek, it's the strongest form of love uh, that is used here. Uh, but it, love carries one. Love drives one. Love of necessity carries one with all his affection and desire to the beloved object in order to possess and enjoy it. That's love. Love carries one with all his affection and desire to the beloved object in order to possess and enjoy it. That's why, that's why a man will leave his father and mother and yearn to, for his beloved. You can read the Song of Solomon this afternoon. Uh, if you're of age, I suppose. Love is completely satisfied. Pure love, pure love is completely satisfied and is at rest in that which he loves. If you love Christ, you're not about to bicker about this point or that point in his teaching. You're not going to... No. If you love Christ, you receive him for all he is and all his teaching. You don't pick him apart because love is satisfied and is satisfying. And I'm talking about an ideal, of course. We all in our sanctification have this true in us to some degree, but it should be something that should be growing. Normally it is in a maturing Christian. Love admires, love contemplates. When you're at home, you come to rest, you sit in your chair, Perhaps you remember your beloved wife. Perhaps you remember your baby. He's asleep, but I, oh, I can't wait till he wakes up. Maybe, maybe he'll say his first word. Love admires and contemplates. It, it, it goes back and returns in heart to that object. It abides, is attached with what is loved. It doesn't want to be separated from that which it loves. That's the nature of love. And an agape love is the highest form of love. And uh, in terms of God's love to us, it is most pure and holy and complete. He will not part from his wife ever. 
espoused, is a spouse church. And uh, as far as Christians go, they have a, a, a love, a bond love with God that keeps them. And the love of Christ, my friends, constrains us. The love of God carries us. And that's why we do what we do. Jesus' words then are plainly stated in Scripture. He doesn't have to invent anything. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 4. Again, I'll just read these places for you. He's also quoting Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Here they are. Hear, O Israel, the unifying principle. The Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I mean, Deuteronomy is the second repetition of the law, but as far as the Ten Commandments go, it just keeps coming at you because it's perfect. It's a perfect moral code. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Again, this is a spiritual law. It's about serving the Lord with every intention, every affection, every emotion, every desire. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Oh, that's where we get baptism. Have we thrown this promise away? Are we going to hold God to this vow? Yes, we hold God to this promise. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and, all your, and that you may live. Those who have circumcised hearts will live forever with God because they are regenerate. And the law speaks to that as well. Leviticus 19 verse 18 shows us the second half of this. The second half has to do with the one commandment that is like the first. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Leviticus 19, verse 18, this is where the Lord gets it. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, I am Jehovah. In other words, that's not Moses saying this. It's God that's saying this. God. What does it mean to love God with all your being? Well, to love him with the heart is to love nothing in comparison to him. He is to be incomparable. He is matchless. He has no one like him. And he doesn't really have a, a formal or logical opposite. He's infinite. He, he, he is one spirit, not in composition. He is the greatest being, but he is mysterious. And he is love. So love from the heart means to love nothing but in reference to him. And that's why when we eat, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. This breakfast, who serves it up? McDonald's? No, no, it's the Lord that, that serves this up for me. It, it, it's, it's going to a museum and looking at the beautiful art piece and saying, well, I mean, isn't Rembrandt an amazing genius? Yes, there's no doubt, but those are gifts that were given by a God who loves beauty and order and light and contrast. And you love nothing but in reference to him. Are you madly in love with a young lady? You should think of the loveliness of God and his great desire to create beauty and give you the love of attraction and affection for her because she is first God's creature and no creature is anything to us but what God makes that creature to us to be. 
Now that ought to, you know, stay your temptation. Because if you ruin that creature by defilement, everything changes. The heart will give up anything, do anything, suffer anything for God to please and to glorify Him. In other words, you don't have to tell this soldier, hold your ground. Although you may. And it's, you know, Ephesians says it. Stand firm. Having done all with a full armor. Yeah. Okay. But love will have you keep your place. They'll all desert you. That's the story of the Apostle Paul. All desires, all emotions, all affections are regulated by faith in your beloved. Fear has reference to God. Desire, delight, love, hate, all in reference, your reference point, carrying not only every word and every thought, but every motion of your heart to God. That's what it means to love from the heart. From the soul to love, to love life, excuse me, the soul, to love God with your soul is to live life, Yasuki. Fasuki uh, is to, to live life and give it up for God. That's what it means, the soul. To endure all, even deprived of comforts rather than to dis dishonor. And we see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11. They have, they have, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. That is to say, they conquered Antichrist and the beast by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives. Suki, Suki. They did not, uh, they did not love their own souls unto death. We give life when we love our lives, when we love the Lord. To love the Lord with all our strength means to exert all the powers of the body and the mind, our reason. A lot of people say, oh, this, you know, this theology is a bunch of, it's so complicated. You have to think, work things out, and there's so much disagreement with so many Doctrines, well, the doctrines are there in their various places. And just because we can't harmonize them with mysteries doesn't mean we ought to discard the baby with bathwater. I mean, people give up, and they, 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 many Christians will refuse to love God with their, with, their, with their reason, with their minds. But we give them all of our powers. If it takes breath to preach, we do things that will help our breathing. We'll find a good asthma doctor or something. Maybe take up dry. I don't know what we'll do. But we'll do everything, mind, body, soul, to yield all our strength, sparing neither labor nor cost for the honor of God. Why? Because he's God. Because there is no other God. Because other things are idols. And because you love what? God. And he's supreme. He's your God. And everybody should see that. You place prime, the primacy goes to him and everything. He trumps everything. That's loving God with all your strength. And of course, that the mind applying himself to know him truly as he is in his being and his works, and especially his holy will is expressed in commandments. You receive sacred truth with love, with gratitude, with submission. Even when you have a question, you ask reverently. This man here was, was an enemy of Christ. He approached him peaceably. And you address, and you, you study these things not as a slave who's who's under bondage to fear, but with, with a son who's, who receives pleasure in all of the light of Scripture because this is, this is knowing about God and His kingdom and His ways, and they're all pleasing to you. 
And you banish from your understanding and memory all wickedness, all, all stupid heresies and things that, that cause trouble. You just, you won't take them up. You know they displease God and so you reject them. Even if you fall and, and then you repent and you confess your sins and you go. Anyway, that's, that's what it means in the ideal to love the Lord our God with heart, heart soul, strength, mind, everything. What does it mean to love your neighbors yourself? <clears throat> well, if you know the Lord, and this is the first thing, Jesus tacks on, he appends the second part of this answer, hinges on the first, because it all depends on the first. Because the first, being the love of God and his love of you, <clears throat> is the source of your love to your neighbor. So what does it mean to love your neighbor? <coughs> Just acknowledge, first of all, that any love you have to your neighbor is a gift of God, and the source of this love is God. And the purpose of love, then, is to glorify God, the Creator. <clears throat> Here's where we differ, differ uh, a, a true Christian and spiritual love from a, from a civil love. A civil love can have affection to a neighbor, but it's displaced, it's not perfect, it lacks faith, and so there's no pleasing God without faith. The love of God is found... Uh, <clears throat> The purpose of this love is always to glorify God first. And if you do anything at all, even if men watching will say, well, that's, he's a good man, that's a good will, that's a good deed. He needs to be, he needs to be a, a, a applauded for that. Well, the Lord, if it's not with the purpose of glorifying God, the creature is stealing glory for himself. You've missed, you've sinned. The love of God is found then, how? How do we know how do we know in practical terms that we, we do love God? Well, because we love our neighbor, because the second commandment is so similar, it's hinged to the first and it's necessary. The love of God is found in our love to our neighbor. How is love expressed? <clears throat> How is love expressed to our neighbor? Love is expressed in equity, in being fair, in charity, in giving uh, uh, of, of helpful resources and benevolence. Do unto others what you would have them to do unto you. That's a golden rule. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. You can study that. All right, again, that's law. It's a summary. It's a summary, but Jesus didn't go there this time. He, he taught it in another place. It's another summary of our, more, of, of our commandments. Holding our neighbor <clears throat> in the best light. You hear something about somebody, oh, wow, that guy's a real rascal. Well, you know, there's always two sides to a report, my friends, especially when it comes to uh, public information that you can research. What, what did Presbytery really rule? What were the proceedings of the last General Assembly? What did they say? Are they about to ordain homosexuals? Is that what the PCA is going? Look, you, 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 you hold things in the best light, you do your homework, and, and even if you hear a bad report, you keep hoping for the best. Forgive your neighbor. Forbear. We can't agree. Our neighbor's wrong. You know he's wrong. And he is wrong. What are you going to do? In a camp on his roof all night long and hammer him? No, you're going to forbear. You're going to wait. You're going to wait long. That's because we're all forbearing. We're all waiting on one another. And Christ is forbearing with us. He doesn't treat us according to our sins. And one day he will take us up to himself and embrace us wholly and glorify us. And then at that point, the church will be spotless. There'll be a spotless bride. We'll be perfect in knowledge and perfect as far as the, regarding the faith, perfected. And as far as our practice, it'll be consistent with all of this holy will. Promoting his good name, 
promoting his prosperity, being rejoicing when, he, when th- good things come to him, weeping and, and praying for him when things go, go badly with him, protecting him, especially his reputation as a Christian. You ought to have as much zeal for that person as you do for yourself. If you find out there's a rumor going on about you, you would certainly want to quell it. But why take up rumors and slander about other people? You don't have all the information, do you? Or do you? You instruct him in his ignorance. You correct him and you rebuke him when appropriate. And you help him in weakness. And sin is weakness. How many times we see Christians pile on a sinner in churches? They hold him in disdain. It's been said of the Christian church, it's the only army that shoots its wounded. Shame on us all. This is the second great commandment, and it follows necessarily from the first. It hinges. It is an absolute necessity that it follows it. Besides, uh, it's quoted in Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Jehovah. All practical Old Testament religion, which is the duty of obedience, taught in the Law and the Prophets, is summarized rightly, compactly. It's a good and valid summary in this rule of love. All practical New Testament religion is summarized rightly in this rule of love. Jesus did not come to do away with any of the moral excellence of God in his his instruction. It's agreeable to us today and descriptive of the fellowship that we have with God. And it's equitable to his very moral essence. And that essence is love. It's agreeable to man's original nature in God's image. And his increasing holiness and sanctification. You talk about increasing in the love of God, you're talking about increasing sanctification. The, you know, God loves us perfectly, and, and he always will, whether we're fully sanctified or not. And he counts us as perfectly righteous when we believe in him because he justifies us once and for all, and he received us as righteous in his sight for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his right, Christ's righteousness alone. But it's agreeable to what holiness looks like in a practicing Christian. Jesus then replied in this manner because the religious leaders needed correction. They were far. Don't you admit? Wouldn't you admit that they, these people, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and now this lawyer, was far from loving Jesus as their neighbor? Isn't that what Jesus is, 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 is here returning to? He asked for the great command, and he gives them the first part. The man had not considered that if he does not love his brother whom he sees, he cannot possibly love God whom he hasn't seen. Impossible. Impossible. Therein is the, the test. Therein is your test. 
lawyer comes to test Jesus, and Jesus now tests him, but he's also testing us. He's testing us. They didn't love Jesus because they didn't love God. They failed the first commandment. Oh, they thought they did, but we deceive ourselves. And there are plenty of Christians. Oh, I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they go around singing that all day long. Perkins says they're mad. Perkins says they've lost their minds. They don't know what they're saying. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. Sing that tune if you want, but my friends, that's heresy. You want to. You have some degree of love, and for that we admit a gracious, perhaps, judgment. But to fulfill this commandment in its perfection today, we wait on the hope of righteousness. We wait on the hope of righteousness. And so therefore, not loving God and not loving neighbor and all manner of envies, envyings and contentions and strivings and jockeying for position, who's the preeminent? This is, this is what causes sex and divisions and false teachings, legalism, false glory, false righteousness, a false hope, and they will fail. They will fail the salvation of Jehovah. And this explains the judgment of destruction that Jesus is about to announce here in the 23rd chapter. Imminent destruction, the woe is imminent. And of course, at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the Jewish dispensation of the, of the covenant of grace is, is over. It's, it's done with. The fig tree is cursed, never to bloom again. Jesus has already prophesied that against the sinful generation, and he will, and he will again. Let me conclude. True, practical religion can be summarized in two rules, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I I skipped over a a portion about how to love yourself, but I'll address that in the evening service. By the way, uh, you really need to come to the evening service. The moral law is being marginalized even among Reformed churches today. We need to understand the Ten Commandments. It is basic. So I strongly urge you to be here for the Exodus series Sunday evenings. (laughs) Beloved, you need to examine and have the Lord, the Spirit, help you examine, is God your supreme love? And if not, who or what, what is your God? You know, and you can make anything your God. God gives us many good things. And the problem with good things is that you might make more than what they really are. And you cheat yourself because if you love that thing that God has given you in Christ, then you love it most lovingly and most truly. And it will not be an idol and a stumbling block because you know if the Lord takes that away, whether it be your beloved wife, whether it be your beloved uh, house or your job, you know that that was given to you by Christ. But since you have Christ, you have all things, and you have all things in Him. That's the perspective of one who has a conversation with heaven and his love is tempered with orthodox faith, with right faith. Beware of idols. Repent. Are you striving by the grace of God to love Him with your whole being? Do you even desire this? Is this something that's an attractive teaching or you think, well, this is a, a heavier burden than I ever called for. I thought all I had to do was believe on Christ. My sins are remitted. I'm off to heaven. Well, yeah. But now do you realize what you've just said? And if you do, then you will think that this teaching is not unlovely. You'll, you'll be glad that God is calling you to be more like him, to, to be more like your beloved. 
Are you striving by the grace of God to love your neighbor? Paul reminds the Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here, here Paul reduces even these two commandments to one, the second one. Because that's the, put, that's the proof in the pudding that you have the right one, the first one right. If you have the first one right, the second one follows necessarily. Paul says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he continues, but now you Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Man, you got a, a pack of lions here, not a, not a church. And he's not writing this because of, because of a theoretical problem in the church. These were true Christians. But they had their envyings. They, they, they had their jockings. They had, and why? I've already explained why. They've missed God. And to the degree that we miss God, the more this trouble haunts the church. Are you guilty of, of heresy? Oh, no, I'm not guilty of heresy. I, 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 you know, I know the confession of the catechism. Well, then do you know, are you guilty of schism? It amounts to the same thing. Heresy is theoretical schism. Schism is practical schism. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you differ in the faith, you're not going to get along with anybody as easily as when you agree in the most important things. And be watchful then, of course, of legalism, which is taking these things, but not in the spirit, not, not receiving them from the hand of Christ. Not receiving them uh, in, in, uh, in truth, in spirit and in truth. Check your love of God. Are you confessing your sins when you fall short of loving God, loving neighbor? This should be a, a practice at the close of every day, or even more frequent than that. Rely on God's promise of grace to help you through this, to help you repent. He's promised to help you. He's promised to help you walk in newness, of life. Now, all of this is for you, my friends, as Christ, our wonderful, wonderful Savior, has fulfilled all of not just the letter of this law, but the spirit, the very inward affections taught here. Everything of Christ was conformable, conformable to the will of his Father. And all of that goes to your credit when you believe in him. He accounts you as perfect in his sight because you have received. Christ is the head of a new covenant, the covenant of grace. And being in Christ, all that Christ is, his graces and his gifts are given to his body, his bride. My friends, that is, that is good news. And, and the reason that we believe this is that we have come to a certain understanding of the law that we fail the law as to a works covenant. We fail. If we were to try to justify ourselves by obedience to any of these commandments, we would, we would certainly be without hope. But these commandments have left us without excuse. We are undone. We are unrighteous and we are sinners and we are condemned. But that, my friends, has driven us to Christ. And that's why every minister must, must preach law and gospel. And he must preach the law to Christians as in Christ and he must preach the law to the lost as in Adam. And when we preach the law to a mixed assembly in Adam, it will have bite. Just like the Mount Sinai covenant had thunderings and lightnings, fire and quakes. And that cannot be denied 
of any congregation because the Lord, who is most gracious, sending His Spirit, will sometimes use threatenings. He'll use whatever means that His people, His elect, will flee to crisis to a strong tower. And having them in there, He again gives them that law in their hearts and writes them on the tablets of His heart so that they, by His Spirit, will begin to walk agreeable to the law and agreeable in Christ, which is, my friend, the gospel. That's what Christ will do for you. When you believe in Him, He will give you His Spirit. He will give you this book that you might eat it, that you might it might nourish you, and that you might be fruitful. And that is, my friend, the great commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And to do that, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Now, Lord, you are the great teacher. You are the prophet of Israel. You know your own word. We thank you for this teaching. We thank you for applying it into our hearts and teaching us the, the breadth and the depth, the, the, all of the dimensions, as much as we can be contained in this short sermon, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would honor you, that we would be amazed at the wisdom of Christ and answering all of his enemies and turning that around given us brilliant, brilliant light, brilliant instruction, and hope by it. We pray, Lord, that you would conform us to your will. Even if it's against our will, Lord, bend our will, grant us grace, that we might please you. Have mercy on us, but by all means, Lord, keep teaching us, keep leading us, keep forgiving us, keep forbearing with your, your church, your bride. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now have an offering, please. Oh.